Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today on Around the Coin, I interview Netta Rosie. Netta is the co-founder and CTO of Parametrics Insurance. Parametrics has raised about $17 million. Their tech team and Netta is based in Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, Parametrics is a cutting-edge system which monitors SaaS and systems around the world for downtime events, such as cloud outages and network crashes and platform failures. And they have this monitoring system that detects all the cloud providers' uh, downtime, and then they provide insurance to companies in case of that downtime. So we talked about the technology that goes into monitoring these systems across the world, which is very, very complex. And we talked about the implications of cloud, the scale of cloud today going forward in the future. Uh, we talked about the effects of a solar flare and other interesting rabbit holes. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Netta Rossi as much as I did. She is fantastic and a fast-growing company. I bring you Netta Rossi. All right, Netta, we're live. I'm excited to get to know you a little bit more. Um, let's uh, let's kick it off with what you're doing. So you founded this awesome company. You moved from. U.S., California to Israel and Tel Aviv. Uh, Parametrics, not only is it a great company, it's got a kick-ass name. Uh, let me ask about the name first. So Parametrics Insurance, what's, what does the name represent to you or where, where does it come from? So it actually uh, has, has a lot of meaning behind it. Um, it's based on a parametric with a C, not with an X, um, insurance, which is an insurance model that essentially eliminates the claims process. So um, when we set out to, um, you know, really create a, a, an, a new futuristic insurance product, um, one of the biggest things that we noticed was that the claims process just puts so much overhead on uh, insurance and really gives it the bad name that insurance has. So um, we immediately set out to find a way to either minimize that process or get rid of it entirely. And the parametric model, we can dive into that later, but um, it does that. And so uh, that was the basis for our company. Um, and parametrics sounds so much cooler than. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. W what is when you say it's overhead? What is the what do you what's the overhead? What do you refer to when you think of that? The claims process itself, um, you know, having to file a claim, having to prove um, not only your loss, but also what happened in the incident itself, you know, going through um, forensics investigations. And, you know, there's just a, it, it can be a really long process. It, it can be uh, months or even years, depending on the size of the company and the size of the loss. And uh, there's a lot of uh, legal fees associated with that and just a lot of overhead um, in general for companies and, you know, for people as well, if we're just talking about the claims process, the regular claims process that insurance uh, has. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it must vary tremendously, whether it's like a car crash or something simple versus like a, a power outage that causes business loss. Parametrics is pr pretty much focused on that. Is that right? So you would typically only insure, is it companies that have uh, cloud storage and specifically for downtime or network crashes and that kind of thing? So we insure downtime. So we've created downtime insurance. 
Um, so when the cloud or cloud applications go down, uh, that's a risk that today you can insure against. We're the first of, of our kind uh, to be able to protect against this risk. Um, and that's important today because for enterprises, cloud is the either second or third largest expense. Um, and the size of that risk is only growing, right? Things are moving more into the cloud, less on-premise. And there are more and more different cloud applications that a business relies on. Interesting. So what it, what's when a when an enterprise uh, thinks about the risk of downtime, do they think about it in terms of revenue lost or uh, advertising revenue or transactions lost? Like in their minds, what's the cost of downtime? So each business will think of it differently. Um, it can be direct revenue loss depending on the the type of business. So it can be direct revenue loss. It can be um, recovery expenses, you know, might take time to, to bounce back up and get back to business. It could be SLA liabilities and liability that you have towards your own customers. If you go down below a certain percentage of nines, usually, you know, 99.9% availability, um, there's usually liability uh, tied to that. It could be either direct payouts or some sort of um, you know, f- other type of fee, or even um, it could be credibility or brand recognition that, you know, was impacted due to the, the outage and the downtime. And you have angry customers that, you know, you have to uh, really yeah. take care of all well. Um, so, so they know that you care and this isn't something that's going to, you know, continue happening. Yeah. Interesting. And did you get a unique vantage point at this problem prior to starting the business where you saw either uh, were you on the recipient end or the <laughs> cloud server end? Like where, where was your viewpoint into this problem to jump into it? Yes, definitely. That's really where it started from. Um, both myself and my co-founders have experienced downtime uh, in previous companies that we've worked at. And there was really never a, a good solution, uh, especially when it came to third-party downtime, right? So cloud or CDN or any type of service cloud application that isn't your own software going down. And when it came to that, it was just a matter of waiting it out. And, uh, you know, everyone was kind of on their toes in the meantime. So um, it, it was absolutely something that we've all felt and the pain and, and there really uh, was no financial solution until now. Mm. And does it, it makes sense to have one, right? Well, I'm thinking about how do you do you know what the curve looks like on over time the downtime averages averages. Like I remember when Twitter was really young, it would crash all the time. It felt like there was this flip of the coin. Now I can't remember the last time Twitter was down, and I think that's probably true of just about every other site. Is it converging on ninety nine point nine nine nine, where it's like, you know? effectively it'll be negligible in a few years or does it how do you understand the landscape of downtime over time so i'd say definitely the the older and larger you have you are as a company the more resources you have to try and mitigate downtime from a technical perspective so Technically, yes, there is a possibility that, uh, you know, we will see um, downtime less and less for these companies, but there are so many new companies popping up that that actually outweighs the uh, the large companies that are able to mitigate their own time. So I'd say it's not a problem that's going away anytime soon. Cloud is accelerating, um, you know, triple digit rates. And, uh, and, and really, it's not going away any anytime soon. And the biggest reason for downtime, uh, because we do track this, and we do look at a lot of different data points, the biggest reason for these huge outages is almost al- always human related. So as long as you still hmm. have humans that are in charge of the cloud, uh, it's not going away anytime soon. So what are people doing back there? They have like wrenches and bolts and soldering irons, and they're just tinkering away at the server farms or like what would what would a <laughs> is it a oh, sadman you know um, mice gets in there seen <laughs> we've seen outages that that were due to something uh, uh pretty similar to that but i'd say the majority are 
um, a bit more boring than that. It's uh, either a bad, you know, deployment or a bad release or just a surge of traffic that wasn't tested um, during development and acts differently than what they were expecting. Mm. And uh, does it vary tremendously between the different providers, between AWS and Azure and everyone else? Um, it, it does vary. So really, that's where um, we we come into play. So the only way we were able to ensure this, the way that we're ensuring it with the parametric model that eliminates the claims process and in general to just price this risk was that we had to monitor all of the services that we provide coverage for. So for example, if we take the cloud, we're monitoring AWS in all of their regions and all of their zones across all of their top mission critical services same for Google, same for Microsoft Azure, same for all other cloud and cloud applications that we ensure. And so we're collecting data as we're monitoring, we're detecting downtime, even, you know, the shortest five minute outages we we detect, and we're continuously collecting um, this data. And we are seeing um, differences in, uh, uh, you know, the outages that these clouds and regions have. I wouldn't say... Uh, the one is necessarily more prone to downtime than others, but I'd say certain regions in these clouds or certain services in these clouds are more prone to downtime than their alternative in a different cloud. Interesting. Is that is there anything to understand there? Is it like due to uh, electricity availability in countries or is there some difference between different areas, why they would be uh, different uh, downtime outages? So the the big public clouds all use uh, tier three and up data centers, meaning that they all have, you know, backup to backup to backup, both for uh, power outages and, uh, you know, hardware. And essentially uh, for the the basic stuff, they, they aren't supposed to have downtime and they wouldn't place a tier three data center in a place where they couldn't provide that level of, of power or, or electricity. So uh, it's usually not, not due to that. I will say that newer regions or newer services, uh, anything new, uh, tends to have, um, you know, a bit more outages than, than one that is tried and true and tested. And so, but, but I'd say that's to be expected. Um, but there are also things that you don't expect, right? There are certain um, regions that have been around for a while and, you know, still have a, a good amount of, uh, of outages. So it's, it's definitely something, I think, not only from an insurance point of view, but I think just from a technology point of view, that's really interesting for uh, the tech team or for any business really to, to investigate and look into um, before choosing where to set up their infrastructure. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and w- when you say downtime, when people say downtime, is it percentage of all time in the year? So if you say you have a 99.2% uptime, or I guess you'd say it that way, then that means that out of all the time in the, in a year, on average, for the last few years, you've been down, you know, 0.08% of the time. Is that the right way to think about it? So it really depends uh, what you're measuring. Usually it's a percentage so that you, so it, it works for almost any interval interval of time. Uh, and generally it's looked at either monthly or annually. Um, so, but, but the percentage can be used uh, almost, you know, in, in any interval of time. Uh, the clouds themselves. So we look at it um, at any interval of time, because for us, you know, even a, a, 30 minute outage can be detrimental for a business, especially, uh, you know, depending what type of of business it is, you know, if it's a business that focuses their uh, um, biggest day of the year around the Super Bowl, uh, you know, a a 20 hour outage any other day of the week is not as Mm. big a deal as a 10 hour outage during the Super Bowl. So um, we'll look at it from the business perspective and structure our, our coverages around that. But the way that the clouds look at it is they will usually look at it monthly and they'll look at, um, they'll, it's called a, a service, their service level agreements for their availability per, per different services. So each service will have a different 
uh, level of availability. And if it falls below that, you're able to ask for credits back. So um, you're not actually getting compensation for your business loss. You're getting compensation for uh, you know the cloud spend or whatever your subscription costs to the cloud and you didn't receive service for a certain period of time during that month. So it's um, it's it's not really looked at, I think, from the business perspective of what the actual loss was, because the actual loss is so much more than just whatever mm. you spent on the cloud during that time. Oh, I didn't realize that. So is that true in all cases? So you so parametrics wouldn't be uh, reimbursing a company for any business loss. It's just purely the percentage of time that was down out of what they're spending on cloud expenses. The other way around. So the the clouds themselves will give you credits back. Oh, oh, oh! I see. You paid them but didn't receive. We cover the actual business loss. Okay. And different to other types of, um, you know, traditional insurance coverages where you have to prove, you have to show receipts for the actual dollar amount of loss that you had. In our case, we understand that there are uh, losses that don't necessarily have a receipt, like brand recognition, right? And um, certain uh, um, customer compensations that aren't necessarily bound uh, by a, an SLA agreement, right? We've seen companies uh, give out a, a free month subscription to customers after an outage, not because they have to, but because they want their customers to stay their customers and not to leave for for uh, an alternative. So they're giving them, you know, this free gift. And so for us, th- those are the types of losses that uh, we look at and and that we care to cover. Um, in addition to the ones that that do have a receipt. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability, that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Mm, that sounds challenging in a way. It sounds, there's some uh, some areas where I'm sure it's it's vanilla to figure out what the cost is, but then if if a company is debating, you know, they call up parametrics and they say we have a 35 minute downtime and our brand is is invaluable and in their minds they think they're the most valuable brand and they think that was a huge expense. Is there is there just kind of that inevitable human perception negotiation that happens or is there ways that you guys have figured out how to quantify it or put it into a yeah. container? We- We've definitely figured it out. Uh, first of all, I hope that they think that they're they're uh, <laughs> valuable because that means that uh, you know they're they're producing a, a good a good product. And so maybe really maybe I don't know if you can go that far. <laughs> that, that they uh, think that, but um, what we do is we pre-agree on the terms. So okay. we'll uh, pre-agree on how much um, dollar amount per hour of downtime the company would get in case of an outage. And then the premium is based off of that. So actually everything is pre-agreed. And th- that was one of the things that when we set out to, um, you know, found parametrics and, and some of the discovery that we had with customers was they said, not only is the claims process, you know, a pain, uh, but also after going through the claims process, you always get less than what you thought you were going to be getting. Mm. And, uh, and and then you feel ripped off because you had this extremely long process and then got less than, than what you thought you were going to get. So um, 
that is another reason why we decided to pre-agree on that ahead of time. You're going to be getting the exact amount that um, we agreed ahead of time. You know, there's no like hidden, uh, uh, you know, fees or anything like that. That's what you're going to be getting. And uh, there's no claims process. So what we'll do is we monitor the cloud. We know exactly when it goes down. We know what cloud you're sitting on and what services you're using. And then that's really all we need. So when there's an outage, you're definitely impacted. And then that money is transferred. So is it from their perspective, the company's perspective, is it just, uh, hey, you know, email in my inbox saying, hey, there was an outage last night for 20 minutes and we deposited money in your account? Or do they have to initiate a claim and have some kind of conversation? It's a combination of both. We'll reach out. Uh, they do need. There is a. Uh, they do need to sign that they had a loss, right? Um, it's, it is insurance, and it is traditional insurance that's backed by traditional players in the market. And we can talk about, uh, you know, why this is relevant for for crypto players in just a minute. But uh, it is. Um, they they have to sign. Hey, I had a loss, and then the rest of the rest is just a clean and easy process. Yeah, it seems like Netta, the magic is the the scanning of the cloud like that that's the piece like conceptually it's nice i mean the the concept of reimbursing people or insuring people for downtime is great but it would be impossible or nearly impossible if you had to rely on the company's self-reporting you have yeah. these you can detect even five minute downtimes is that how is that technically working is it a bunch of web crawlers hitting all these sites every five minutes or do you have embedded code on the sites that of your customers or something else so we don't sit on the uh our, on our customers at all we actually uh, prefer not to what we'll do is we will monitor the service providers themselves so oh, okay. we're monitoring the infrastructure and we know when the infrastructure goes down and then the customer that is sitting on that infrastructure is impacted Got it. So you just monitor, would it be like monitoring the Amazon web services status page to see when that changes? No, no, that's, so that's, you know, when you've said, uh, you can't just go off by, uh, what they say, uh, that's, that's what we talk, what we look at, right. You can't just go off by, by what they say, cause we're monitoring them and we see that it is quite different and really? customers will tell you the same, right. There's um, five minute outages aren't reported on that page. For example, um, the the customers generally see a bigger impact than what is reported. Uh, so no, so we don't we don't only go off of the status pages. We actually monitor the infrastructure directly, um, both on the application layer and on the networking layer. Interesting. So how does that work technically? Is it uh, like a, you're making a request to, um, it would be a stretch for me to even guess. How, how are you like uh, from a c computer science perspective, monitoring the infrastructure? So that's really where our, our IP lies. But what I can tell you is that we're monitoring everything, both the application layer, the networking layer, um, it's not just pings. It's way uh, deeper than that. Each service is monitored separately, right? There's a difference between monitoring a compute service and a storage service, for example. And so each one uh, is monitored separately and uh, also across all the data centers that the cloud provides. Hmm. Interesting. So there's I'm picturing some kind of computer program that you guys have hosted on these local cloud providers that track when it goes down and then uses the compute that these cloud services offer in those areas to see when that goes down as well. Is that generally speaking? I mean, I'm not, obviously I don't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. We produce a ton of data. So we have over 700 million data points a week just from this system. And this system is also hosted in multiple clouds because uh, we are a cloud-based company, but we're monitoring cloud outages, right? So we essentially can't go down when the cloud goes down. And so we've really sent it, set, set it up across multiple clouds and multiple data centers and are monitoring down to the millisecond. 
how huh. they're performing. So it, w- would this make sense by example? So if you have a cloud service provider in, say, Italy, and you want to measure the downtime of that location, that you'd have some program running in the cloud on that location. And then when it goes down, then it's 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 not communicating with the other cloud um programs that you have running on other cloud providers so it says hey you know the italy cloud is down it's not responsive therefore we're tracking that time and then once it pops back on then we say hey oh it's back so then you measure that as an outage does that does that rough analogy hold true um it's yes but it's very rough so i'd say um you're also missing the other way around so it's hey italy uh, isn't responding anymore uh, but the other way around is is true as well, right? Um, Italy isn't alive. There's Italy isn't alive, and there's Italy isn't responding. Mm. And uh, you also have to look at it from different areas around the world, right? Maybe Italy uh, is disconnected from uh, the U.S., but maybe Italy is working in Japan, for example. So uh, it's it's a really widespread mesh of um, of, of monitoring tools that we've developed. And that's where our IP lies, because this is data that no other provider in the world has. And this is what we base uh, our, our, our models on. And this is what we base our triggers on when there are outages. And um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of uh, neat tech behind it. Yeah, that's super interesting. So if there is a Italy to US communication that's down, but the Italy to the rest of the world is still working, <clears throat> then that would be considered a partial outage, right? Which is that, I guess, depending on whatever, you know, agreement you have with the company would be partially insured. So there's like a whole, yeah, so you have partial outages, full outages, storage outages, compute outages, and you have all so these different... Tons. Those are just two services that uh, the cloud provides. And, you know, when we're, you know, the cloud provides tens of, almost hundreds of services and each one needs to be monitored individually. And then you also have other cloud applications that aren't necessarily the public cloud uh, that are also monitored. For example, uh, content delivery networks, right? CDNs, mm. uh, which is how, you know, resources or uh, files and videos get transferred quickly around the world. Um, and when that goes down, then essentially websites stop working. Can you are working very slowly. Can you give me a, a, a like a eighth grader level description of what a CDN is and why it's useful? Yes, it's uh, the way that it, you're able to watch uh, a YouTube video in uh, Japan, even if the YouTube video is hosted um, on a server in the U.S. Mm. So would it be true that a CDN is is uh, frequently, maybe every few minutes or hours or seconds, it's pulling data from other locations and then storing it temporarily. Is that the right way to think about yeah, it? Yeah. So it's, it's caching it, right? So storing it temporarily in closer data centers to where you're physically located, even if the resource itself um, is, you know, homed somewhere else across the world. What do, do you think this rough analogy is true that the way that the, the computer works, the way that the mind works, the way that the cloud layer works, all have uh, parallel um, purposes where you have long-term storage, which is the cloud locations. You have your disk space on your computer and you have your long-term memory in your brain. Then you have your short-term memory, you have your RAM on your computer, and then you have caching layer on the cloud. Is the do you, Does that metaphor hold true for you? Do, in those examples? Yeah, I definitely think that we're computers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I have context switches all the time. <laughs> uh, we're definitely uh, uh, programmed. And uh, I think when we invented the computer, we, uh, we, we couldn't think of any other way to do it. <laughs> but, mm. uh, there also seems like there's something... It's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's not just one of many options of building a computer. It seems like the way that nature has evolved our minds is is the way that just works with a lot of data. It just if you live in a world where there's a lot of things going on and you want to process that, recall that, uh, remember that, then it just makes sense to have these multiple layers. I guess that's just a 
fundamental truth of how how humans or maybe all life processes information because it seems more so than just humans right many different animals have this kind of dual memory system yeah yeah i agree yeah there's something to that uh it's like we're building a collective giant brain in the cloud and and the caching layer (laughs) but when it goes down that's yeah uh, that's a yeah. So what happens if a giant solar flare comes? Is that just that you throw your hands up and you say, well, <laughs> can't, can't account for this one. Like, is, does that, is that, I, obviously you can't predict that, but statistically speaking, it'll, something like that might happen. Is that, does that come up in conversation? Well, Yes. So actually, uh, one of the most interesting things that happens in insurance is that you end up talking about these big black swan events, right? Because they seem like they're, um, you know, out there and can never happen, but statistically they can, right? Who would have thought that a pandemic, um, would have, would have happened in this year? Well, insurance thought about it, right? And and there were actually risk managers that were talking about it and everyone probably thought they were crazy. So um, there's definitely, um, uh, but, but those are factored into the models, right? So you look at uh, black swan events as something that potentially can happen and, and you factor those in. Um, but trust me, if, if we have a, a solar flare, I think we have bigger problems. Um, <laughs> you know, than just, yeah. <laughs> than, than just, uh, Amazon going down. I think there's going to be other things that we're going to ha- be wrapping our, our brains around. How likely is that? Is that something that you, you lose any sleep over? Do you think having looked into it is like, uh, what do you like chances of it happening in our lifetime? I'm 34. If I live to be 84 of the next 50 years, is it like, are we looking at like a point zero 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 or is These like- can be, you know, so I, I'm not, I can't speak to uh, the solar flare specifically. I can, I can look that up in the models. Um, it, it's definitely in there. Um, but I, I don't remember that off the top of my head. But when we talk about black swan events, we talk about, um, you you know, one in um, at least 200 years. So one in 200, 1000 years type of event. Um, if that falls within your lifespan, um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. You ever watch the second Blade Runner? The movie? <laughs> no. Oh, it's really good. They ha- you should definitely watch it. There's a part in there where he goes, there's a giant in the past. There's a giant, uh, solar flare or uh, they don't, I think they refer to exact cause of it, but it's a complete outage and they were viewed as the blackout. So all, uh, disc, uh, space was scrambled basically anything that was operating on a computer was lost and it's uh fascinating to see that portrayed in theatrical perspective because it's something that if it were to happen today i mean how much of your life is stored on a computer versus written down somewhere and it, it's and it's it wouldn't be the first time that that's happened to human collection of knowledge right with alexandria library right. by alexandria burning down it's like I don't know. I, I think about that sometimes and think about what, what ways we would prevent that. I don't know if Google has a, it'd be nice if Google had like a printed version of all their, uh, or at least the majority of the Wikipedia yeah. pages printed out somewhere in a giant vault. You don't have to wait until, you know, that big of an event. What, what do you think about cold storage wallets? Hmm. Yeah. With crypto specifically? Yeah, for someone that's that's a big incident, right? If if that go- disappears or you know you lose it, that's uh that could be a really big deal. It doesn't have to be uh, something that is across the the entire globe. Th- these are incidents that can happen um, on the same magnitude, but for someone for an individual, right? A, a house burning down mm. um, and and childhood photos being lost, thing, mm. things of that sort. It can. Yeah. Happen on a smaller scale as well. Yeah. Yeah. It sure can. Um, it, in crypto, do you, you mentioned crypto earlier. Uh, is parametrics focused on crypto specifically, or is there a part of the business in the future that will be? Oh, we definitely are. Uh, we actually have seen um, that we have many customers from the crypto space. So, 
uh, both um, it can be exchanges, um, wallets that are called, uh, you know, that have some connection to to the cloud, um, crypto platforms and uh, digital asset platforms. We've definitely seen how they're connected to the cloud, and especially in the crypto space, it's one of those industries um, that doesn't have a lot of patience for downtime, right? Customers want everything to be available all the time, and, uh, and, and they expect it to be available all the time. And if, you know, there's downtime due to the cloud, that doesn't matter, right? You should have had better uh, redundancy, better resiliency. And then it's a matter of how do you mitigate this risk of losing customers now? Um, because they're unhappy with the service that they didn't receive um, mm. during the outage. Yeah. Uh, have, you, have you seen a majority of companies come in through crypto or does the, com- does the customer list of your, your company tend to look more like, I'm just thinking who would be most interested in this? Is it larger companies that have really important systems like um, airlines or banks or that kind of thing? Or is it more consumer or money? fintech company in general or in, or in the crypto space oh uh, i was curious in general okay um in general it's usually bigger companies uh, are are less interested in taking risks mm-hmm. and therefore they try to mitigate as many risks as they can also usually uh, the bigger the, co- the the company um the more competitors that they, they potentially have and if they aren't providing the service to their fullest um, you know, customers will leave. And so um, we do see it, I'd say, in like mid to large size companies. We have both private and public companies. Um, it, there, there definitely is a, a big need also for small companies, right? It just depends on the type of business and um, the coverage is suitable for anyone using the cloud. So mm. you know, all, custom, all companies basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you think that it'll grow to the point where every company has this and thinks of it as kind of table stakes to start. I, I imagine startups probably just never would. There's just not enough uh, incentive, I guess, for the percentage of downtime realistically that they'd be looking at. Um, yeah. We have right? plenty of startups as, as customers. No, it's really um, whoever's in, in the cloud should be getting this. And, and it is one of those things um, that, we see as being a, a staple in an insurance portfolio. And that's due to the fact that the cloud is the second or largest, you know, expense that a business has, right? You're not going to be spending um, millions of dollars on the cloud and, uh, and, and not insuring that while you are insuring, uh, you know, the furniture mm. in your, in your company or in your building, um, which, it costs a lot less than that, right? So um, it's definitely something that uh, is part of of the risk that we're taking as businesses when we move to the cloud, where you know downtime now is not within uh, our control necessarily, and so um, there yeah. needs to be a certain level of risk mitigation. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I can I can vibe with that. I remember when we raised money, we raised our Series B, and we had about. Uh, 50 employees, I was amazed at how much insurance we had to get. It felt like, you know, I'm just, this is probably very typical uh, of every, every company that size, but it's like, everything's insured. It's just, you, you look, I'm like all the, like you said, all the furniture, all the people, all the actions of the people, all the electronics for so many different instances. Um, but it makes sense. I mean, as you accumulate more personally, and then as a company, you think about these things. Um, hmm. Yeah, as a company, you you have responsibility, right? You have responsibility over the people you employ. You have responsibility over your customers. You have responsibility, and and part of that is you know being able to financially support um, them if something goes wrong. And so, um, it, yeah, as a company, it's uh, it's it's one of those things that 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 you have to get, and it's one of those things that you don't want to think about until. Um, yeah, you just want to know that you have it. Right? Yeah. You, you want to know that you're covered. You want to know that you're protected and then you don't want to think about it that much more. Yeah. I want to ask you about the, uh, the, the cloud, uh, again. So when you think about the cloud, when I think about the cloud, I think of these large data centers, you know, we've all seen the, the little snippet videos where it's like 
row after row after row of these huge servers uh, in ultra clean rooms with massive fans. And these would be owned and monitored by Google or Amazon or Microsoft. Generally speaking, there's a few really large providers of cloud services and they, mm -hmm. uh, they benefit from economies of scale. And so it makes sense that there's a few really big ones out there and they have them distributed all across the world. So there's kind of this consolidation effect of cloud service providers where similar actually in crypto, funny enough, where we say crypto is entirely decentralized, but the mining itself has been hyper consolidated. Yeah. So it's like, if you're, if I'm sending you Bitcoin or vice versa, that's happening on one of 12 different, uh, mining company server farms. And do, do you see it like if you kind of map this out over time, uh, we have local storage of servers, we have distributed servers all over the place that gets really consolidated amongst a few players. Does it does it just end there? I mean, do you see 50 years from now, we're just in the same arrangement where we have these large server farms across the planet? Do you see them shooting these things up into space and, and having computational and storage power floating around in orbit does that make sense or some other trajectory yeah so uh definitely i think you know one of the things that uh, and you spoke about this a little bit before that uh, you know we're as, as humans going to be focused on um is just preserving the amounts of data that we have and so you know shooting it into the sky putting it in the arctic you know all those types of things are um are, are one way to go um, so I, I think there are going to be some pretty cool, uh, experiments with that. Some of them, um, you know, may take form for the future and some of them, uh, may make for a very interesting uh, article, but, uh, regardless of that, what I see is that, um, yes, we are seeing consolidation. We are seeing that when, um, these giants, right, uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, when they want to grow and they have to grow because more and more. Um, people and, and companies are moving to the cloud. When they grow, they essentially consume other smaller providers, right? So if they are to open uh, a data center in a country where they don't have a data center yet, usually what they'll do is um, they'll acquire a very small local um, cloud provider, and then the they'll just ramp up the data center so that it becomes a, a tier three and up data center, which is their standard. And so um, I think that is something that we're going to continue seeing. Um, it's going to be very hard for a small player to to compete with these big players. Um, but, you know, it is an open market. So essentially, there, there may be uh, new technology that comes out that, um, you know, it can be decentralized uh, in some uh, way, shape, or form, and, and you know, it's an open market. Yeah. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Yeah, I, I saw a stat uh, recently that was, uh, I think there's, I think there's roughly 9 billion people on the planet, somewhere in that range, eight to nine, and that uh, roughly 60% have access to the internet today. Um, uh, and of those 90% were on mobile. So there, there's roughly four four to four and a half billion people who still don't have internet, which kind of blows my mind when I travel around and, and see different, yeah. I mean, when you travel, it's biased that you're traveling to cities with airports and then those are going to be likely more developed, but there's a huge number of people in rural areas that don't have internet. That seems like it's changing quickly. It seems like the rate at which countries that are uh, typically had been previously impoverished, lack of infrastructure, namely roads, buildings, sophisticated and uh, not corrupt government, and then internet infrastructure. Seems like that's increasing dramatically just about everywhere in the world. 
Uh, do, do you see that being the driving force for cloud growth or is it more so are companies still operating dedicated servers or is that pretty much on its way out or, you know, very, very small? It's on its way out, but, but they still are, right? So there's um, a, a pretty good chunk of companies that um, are planning to move into the cloud or have partially moved to the cloud, but they definitely still have on-premise servers and uh, some of those are, are big, right? We're talking big banks. Okay. Um, and so I definitely, when those move to the cloud, um, the, the cloud market will grow even more than it's growing now. Um, you know, the, the population that isn't connected necessarily to the internet today uh, will continue to be collect- connected, right? So you could see growth from there. But I think it's going to be the big fish moving to the cloud that is is really going to make an impact. And it, it's just continuing the tra- trajectory to that it's already um, going through right now, right? Hmm. I mean, cloud consumption is astronomical. Yeah. Do you have an idea? Would you say 10% of all, how would you think about this? Like 10% of all current computation and storage is today being done on individual servers versus the cloud does that sound right or is it more like 0.1 or or 30 percent like how many i think of these banks and i can't think of i mean are they really consuming a ton of traffic and computation yeah they have a ton of first of all well traffic yes uh and and data as well is one of those things that that they're consuming. There's definitely a, a lot of um, movement happening. You know, every transaction, things like that, where it can even be in you know the the small things that we don't think about, but it definitely adds up. So so yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm curious to ask you about Tel Aviv. So you're in Israel. Uh, you've been there for a while, but you also lived in the U.S. It's I've interviewed a number of people from Tel Aviv in particular. And mm-hmm. I, I'm struck by how uh, innovative and how many awesome companies and intelligent people come out of or live in Israel, uh, in Tel Aviv in particular. The one thing, one thing that I was somebody told me that I, I guess I interviewed a founder was like he said to me that uh, in Israel the military or service is compulsory. Everyone volunteers. I don't know if you call it volunteers. Everyone's a part of it at some point in their life. There is a war, you know, active high tension. I don't know if you call it a war, but there's like active tensions going on. So there's this, this mentality that people have where they're, um, (laughs) they're thinking about how to progress technology. How do we, because, you know, in today's world, physical confrontation among countries is a technology game. It has been for a long time, but more so software, more so sophisticated arms, battles, and that sort of thing. And he's like, we're thinking about this all the time. So you get into this situation of you're in the the war room and you have to design an anti-defense missile system. And so you're just, you're put into this uh, arrangement of, of complex system and software and real world design that in many ways, is training grounds for building a company. And he's like, because of because so many people have that, that, that mental operation or that experience is so pervasive, it's like you come out of that and you're like, well, what am I going to do? Well, let's go start a company. You're already kind of trained on that way of thinking. Does that vibe with you? Do you see that among other friends of yours and people you meet that that's the influence? Or is there something else about Tel Aviv or Israel that gives it, it the spark? I don't know, but I can definitely tell you that a startup is not like the most <laughs> <laughs> completely different. Um, it's uh, I, I don't know if that is uh, the best training ground for for uh, a startup. Maybe maybe more for a corporate, mm. um, but maybe on the technology front, there there is some truth in that. So you know, there is a lot of um, thinking around innovation and technology. And, uh, and I, I think people feed off each other. So if that's the conversation that people are having, um, at a bar, or, you know, if that's the conversation that just people are having at a coffee shop, um, then, then you pull mm. in a, inspiration from that. And so I definitely think that it's, you know, people feeding off of one another and 
Yeah. yeah I don't know. I can't tell you well, why, but there, uh, there definitely are a lot of startups. Yeah. I mean, my, my family's from Italy. When I go there, they're all, you know, kind of quintessentially just laying back and eating food. Like there's no, there's no urgency to the effort. And I feel like given the, the geo politics, it seems like there's an urgency to the, uh, development of, of building things and moving things forward. Um, yeah, interesting perspective. Uh, I'm curious, uh, your background is having been on the technical side, you're the CTO. Do you, what languages is the company built on now or what technologies? And then what technologies do you stay up on or are, are most excited or are, are there things that come to mind when you think about mm-hmm. technology advancement? Yeah. So I, I think one of the best things about um, being a part of a startup and, and founding a startup is that you get to choose which technologies you work with. And it's not some leg- legacy, um, you know, system that is very hard to, to move and to innovate from. And so um, our technology stack is, um, you know, the latest and it's always fun to, to work with. Um, new technology and every new project that that we set out, um, those are some of the things that that we look into. Um, and I think really what we focus on is the cloud and not only how quickly it's evolving, but the risks that come with um, everyone moving to the cloud and how technology can help uh, to mitigate that risk, both in understanding the risk, defining downtime, understanding how often downtime happens, alerting quickly when it does happen. Um, all of these things are, are things that we look at and things that I think from a, a technology perspective are where, you know, the world is, is moving and going as more and more companies move to the cloud. Um, another thing I, I think that um, we, we look at, which is definitely um, a, a huge focus, is uh, availability. I think we as humans are becoming um, less patient and, you know, we think we need things to be always on and always available. And we have zero patience and tolerance for, for downtime. And also if something happens that impacts um, the standard that we expect to see, um, we expect a certain uh, a compensation or at least, um, you know, a, a different treatment than just Oh, sorry, you know, we messed up. Um, And so that's another thing that we're seeing with technology as things move fast and quickly. And there's a lot of new, um, you know, technologies popping around. And I think one of the things that we're seeing um, in the crypto space specifically is really um, credibility. And and that's one of those things that, you know, in new spaces, new tech, new new innovation, um, credibility, credibility is really important to create not only in the technology itself, you know, by either um, having it open sourced or, you know, just um, explaining into how it works and what you're doing. Um, Credibility is really one of those things that we see companies look at, especially when they evaluate our insurance, which is actually uh, quite interesting, right? Because crypto is such a new and and innovative space, but uh, is turning to the traditional insurance industry because, um, you know, having that stamp of approval from a traditional uh, insurer that has vetted your company um, and is willing to insure your risk is, is, you know, something that builds credibility and trust. And and we've seen a lot of crypto companies talk about insurance on their websites. And, um, you know, it's something that, that doesn't happen necessarily in other industries. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what can I ask you? What technology stack do you use today, and how did you choose it? Yeah. So um, we're based in the cloud, right? So uh, AWS, Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure. We have a multi-cloud infrastructure. Um, we write mainly in um, Python and Rust, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how low level we we need to go. Uh, everything is run on Kubernetes. You know that's that's really important for us uh, to be top of game there, especially since we're across multiple clouds. What uh, I ask you on Kubernetes? What what is Kubernetes, and why is it important that you use it? 
So Kubernetes is a way to orchestrate your infrastructure, right? So it's important to use it um, because today you want a well-orchestrated infrastructure and you want to know exactly when things are running and why and when they're not, you want them to automatically bounce back. Mm. And is, is Kubernetes built, is it an open source? Uh, would you describe it as an open source architecture or an open source programming language or a product built from Docker? You tell me. So it is open source, uh, but uh, it has managed services, right? So each cloud will let you um, use a managed Kubernetes service, um, which is usually easier to get up and running, but you can host it yourself if if you want to. Mm. And do, do you think of Kubernetes as containers so that you're running code inside of a Kubernetes c- container? Is that is that the right way to think about it? Or I, um, it, they they come they come together. So Kubernetes um, it is a, a container orchestration, so it runs containers, um, but it it isn't a container itself. I see. Got it. All right. So you use Kubernetes on the cloud, Python, Rust. W- what was it about Rust that that you decided to use? I, I typically think of Rust as more used in crypto. I hear it a lot. Um, yeah, what's the, was it just familiarity with the language in the early days or was there other attributes that made it appealing? No, so we we uh, we decided to go for us because we were looking for a lower level language. So we have things that um, monitor the networking layers of uh, the cloud infrastructure and um, that was an, a lot uh, more efficient to do with a lower level language. Mm. But where did you learn computer science? Did you learn it? Did you learn most of it in school, traditional higher education, or did you learn most of it just hacking on side projects or from a mentor or something? Self-taught, like self-taught. pretty much. Um, yeah, self self-taught. I actually started working before I I got my degree, so I kind of did things uh, the the other way around. But um, yeah, it's always just been a passion. What'd you do? Did you build a personal website like? Uh, netofrosie.com and figure out all the hosting and, and domain registrar and front end, back end? Or were you working on another startups or how did you get your, yeah, get into it? Um, not necessarily building a website, but I think every time there was a problem I had in my life, I looked to solve it with technology. Um, and so just a bunch of, of side mm. projects, um, you know, uh, um, gaming, things like that were always an interest. And I think a lot of developers start from that as well. Um, you know, looking for like codes mm. and things like that where you can get more points. Yeah. Um, it's always a good place to start. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I, that that's usually how most people start, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to some people who they'll recognize that we're going through a huge global explosion and the need for the number of developers. Uh, certainly they're paid well. You could There's a lot of perks to the job. You can do it anywhere. You can solve your own problems. Do, how do you think of the process of, you know, if you're talking to yourself uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, when, whenever you're really deciding whether this is something you want to pr- pursue professionally, how do you think about the the questions you'd ask yourself then? You know, speaking to someone else who's younger, if they're t- if they're coming to you and say, "Hey, Netta, I want to be a software developer because they earn a lot of money and they can travel," and meanwhile, you look at this mm-hmm. person and it's like, ah, "I don't know if this is quite for you." What, what do you ask them, or how do you coach or think about guiding someone to make that decision? Um. So I think there there almost isn't a wrong answer as to why. Um, you know, why become a, a software engineer? Um, even if it is, you know, seem that if, even if your answer is, it seems like a great career, um, ideally you will have some interest in it, right? And and you want to enjoy waking up in the morning. But I do think it is the base for almost anything. So even if uh, you don't see yourself as um, a developer 10 years from now, I do think that the way that... Um, our world is structured today is all around technology. Mm-hmm. So having that base 
um, is, is good for anything, no matter what you're going to be doing, right? If you're uh, marketing, then, you know, maybe you're working at a uh, tech company and that base will, will come in handy. If it's sales, maybe you're selling a tech product and that base will come in handy. And um, so I, I almost don't think there's a wrong answer as to, to why pursue yeah. uh, software development. Um, ideally, you know, you're also interested in it and you do see yourself a developer in, in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And if you're not interested in it, even if you start, you learn the basics, then you'll be frustrated long enough where you say, this is not for me. But you still keep the experience points that you gained even in the early days, whether it's a few months or a few years and trying it out. It does seem like a, g- a good piece of advice I got when I was younger was go after something that's more technical. And if you don't like it, change as opposed to the other way around. So I studied mechanical engineering, uh, computer science, and it was helpful to 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 start off in that direction. So I I I think that's a, I mean, who knows? Because the world changes and the demand for different skills change over time. But if you're today, right now, seems like good good advice. Um, and you guys are located only in Israel. Is it a remote team? Is there anything that you guys are looking for or? Uh, that you want to throw out there. Certainly, I'm sure if, if companies are interested in getting cloud insurance, check out parametricsinsurance.com, I believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, we are not only based out of, of Tel Aviv. Actually, our headquarters are in New York. Mm-hmm. So we have a New York office. The development um, and, and the research and development teams sit, sit in Tel Aviv, which is why I'm out here. But actually, the uh, the headquarters are in New York, and we are a global company. So we sell um, all across the U.S., all across Europe, in Japan, and uh, um, growing to more and more uh, locations very, very soon. Um, we have employees all over the world, so um, remote work is is definitely an option at Parametrics. Um, you know, we're always looking for amazing people, so um, it, it, either hiring. So we're always looking to grow. Uh, both the development teams and you know all the other teams in in the company and really looking for for great people mainly um, and uh, partners right so great partners for the way is something that um, you know we're always interested in um, yeah so if you know anyone has any interests uh, reach out um, always here to uh, you know to to help out in whatever way I can yeah. Yeah, it sounds like if, if for nothing else, people would learn a lot about how you built what you built. It sounds like a really innovative approach to insurance. And I'm sure you'll have other ideas that spin off new products in the future. Um, so congrats on everything you guys have built. Are you publicly writing or tweeting or blogging anywhere that you want to throw out for your own or or no? I probably should be. Um, I'd say I'm most active on, on LinkedIn, although uh, I should probably be uh, a <laughs> more active on twitter i'm sure yeah well today yesterday elon bought twitter so maybe that'll change <laughs> <laughs> i know right so so who knows yeah maybe it's actually good that i'm not on <laughs> yeah that's crazy i can't believe that deal went through as fast as it did uh right right it was just rumors like i know i know and they're like well it's done yeah i right it's crazy crazy times that means it's probably been done like weeks before too right and yeah I, and they were waiting for the, the pr moment he seems so damn transparent though it's like I, everything he tweets out he's like yeah i just he put up a a poll on twitter he's like should i sell my shares of tesla and he they voted yes so he sold them and then they're like what do you think of tw- is twitter an open and free platform for communication and it was like 80 percent of people said no so he's like all right i'm gonna buy it yeah let me fix that <laughs> open source it yeah. and whatever else cool that would be great yeah yeah I, I think so, but who knows? Either way, it'll be a twist to the story of the human journey. Who know whatever yeah. repercussions happen there. All right, Netta, I'll let you run. So great to talk to you and so great to meet you and keep crushing it. It was great meeting you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. 
If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.